0: morning uh, comes from Matthew chapter 5 from the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount the last couple of weeks, and God willing, we'll continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount for the rest of uh, the fall. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 810, Matthew 5, uh, starting in verse 27. Now, so far up up to this point, Jesus has been uh, kind of laying out his manifesto for the kingdom. He's talked about the Beatitudes, the the, um, the heart state of the people who are in God's kingdom, what it's like to be uh, truly blessed. Uh, and then he's talked about uh, that his disciples, the people in his kingdom, are supposed to be salt and light. They're supposed to be different uh, from the world. And then uh, in the section which, that Paul dealt with last week, he talked about how um, the church is not just supposed to be different from the world. They're supposed to be different from the, uh, the religious leaders as well, that they're supposed to have a, a greater righteous, righteousness than that of the Pharisees uh, and the teachers of the law. So that's where we are. That's kind of the context. Let's stand and we'll read uh, the passage for this morning. Since it's kind of short, uh, I'll go ahead and start at verse 13 so I can review uh, where we've been. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 13, Pew Bibles, page 810, is the words of Christ. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Don't think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then skipping down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman With lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart If your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell And if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell You may be seated. We'll take a moment and reflect on god's word together uh, Before the sermon Now, you can already see from the title of the sermon, from what I've read, that the topic today is going to be kind of sensitive. Um, And Paul, our fearless leader in his wisdom, has decided to go to India and then skip over the section on anger and give me the section about lust. So um, thank you so much, Paul, if you're listening to this on the sermon recording. Um, So you can see what our topic is today. So really, before we even start... I know that there are a lot of really difficult stories uh, in the congregation uh, surrounding this issue. And and there's a lot of difficult stories in the world (laughs) revolving around this issue. And so um, I just want to say before we start off, if uh, sexual temptation, sexual addiction, uh, especially as it's related to pornography, uh, if that's currently part of your story or it's the story of your spouse, or a loved one, uh, I want to recommend a book to you. And we have five copies of it that we just got that are in the office and they're in the little kind of turnstile book thing. And you can just go in there and very secretly and discreetly grab the book. Uh, but it's called finally free. It's by a biblical counselor named Heath Lambert and kind of in my work with college men and men of all ages, uh, talking about this topic. This is the best book that I've found. And I've read like a lot of books <laughs> about this. And so this is really helpful. Um, But please, if you get the book, you can kind of get it uh, secretly, but don't keep it a secret. Uh, Let me know. Talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about the book. So just just email me, or you can text me, and we can meet and talk about it together. Um, And because I know also many of you uh, have suffered because of sexual desire that's become abusive or or wounded you, uh, I'm also asking you this morning to lean in with uh, extra attention and and kind of patience uh, with me. Um and especially I'm speaking to spouses here. Um if this is a struggle, uh if this is a hard place in your life right now, um I really want to ask you, don't struggle through this with your partner alone. Uh reach out to me, reach out to David or, or Paul or, or your elder, a community group leader, a friend in the church. In fact, that's your, that's your assignment is to find someone else to talk about this with that's not your spouse, because your spouse is your spouse, your spouse isn't like the purity police for your life. Uh, so uh, find someone else that can help. There's a lot of people in the congregation who would love to offer uh, help, because the burden's just too big to carry on your own. All right? Is that good? So one of our family's favorite books to read. Uh, is a story about two best friends. You may have heard of them. Uh, In our house, they're they're as big as Bert and Ernie. Uh, Their names are Frog and Toad. And uh, so Frog and Toad, uh, there's this one story in particular that Gus loves that I really love to read. It's called Cookies. And uh, the story uh, of cookies begins with a problem. So Toad has made some cookies, some delicious cookies. But the cookies are so delicious, they're so good, that they can't stop eating them. So they try everything. They say, all right, we're just going to have one more cookie. And then they can't stop eating the cookies. Um, They tie the box of cookies shut, and they think, surely now we've tied the box of cookies shut, we'll be able to stop eating the cookies. But they keep eating the cookies. Uh, They put the cookies up high on a shelf. Toad gets a ladder and goes to get the cookies on the shelf. And finally, like a good friend, Frog Looks at Toad and he says, listen, dude, this is what you need. This is your problem. You need willpower. That's what you need. You need willpower. All you have to do is just try harder. You can do it, Toad. Just use willpower. But the moral of the story is Toad can't do it. (laughs) He can't exercise willpower. And so Frog takes the cookies, throws them outside, and all the birds eat them. And then Toad just says, well, whatever, I'm going home and I'm going to bake a cake. And... (laughs) So my fear for us today when we're talking about this passage, as I've been praying about it this week, my fear is that we would walk away thinking just like Toad, that we would believe the lie that all we need to obey Jesus' teaching in this passage is more willpower, that all we need to do is just try really hard. Uh, So many of us, I think, have fallen into that trap. We thought that, and just like Toad, we're ready to pack it up, and suffer in silence alone, or just bake a cake and eat it in the dark. And I have to tell you, I have been in so many meetings with men and women of all ages, not just college students, not just high school students, people who are sick about their sin, people especially who are sick about sexual sin in their life. And when I speak to them, they're berating themselves for their lack of willpower. But what we see in this passage today. It, that according to Jesus, our problem isn't that we lack willpower. In fact, if you're honest, you know that your will is actually pretty strong. It's not the power of your will that's the problem because whatever you love, you're going to do with all the vigor and all the intensity that you have. So it's not the the problem of the strength of your will. Your wills are really strong. My will is really strong. But the problem is, is that our wills are directed to a disordered love. Our wills are pointed in the wrong direction. It's not the strength of our will, but the direction of our desires. That's the problem. And that deeper problem, that problem of our disordered love, Our disordered worship, our disordered desire, that's what Jesus is concerned with in our passage today. So we're looking at uh, his picture, remember, of what a citizen of the kingdom looks like. Jesus said, we read it earlier, that his kingdom people are going to be salt and light. That the church should not only season and preserve the world around it to keep it from going rotten, like salt does, uh, but that the church should also stand out from the world, like a candle in a dark room. And we saw last week that the church is not only supposed to be different from the world, but they're also supposed to be different from the religious leaders, right? They're supposed to have a different kind of righteousness, a different, deeper kind of holiness than the holiest of religious leaders could hope to achieve. And without this superior kind of righteousness, we can't be citizens in God's kingdom. The values of the kingdom are different from both the values of the world or the values of the religious teachers, That's really what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about. If you want to just kind of have a framework for what we're going to be talking about the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, just just think of Jesus' words in verse 20 where he says, I tell you, unless you have a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we're asking, okay, well, what does that righteousness look like? And Jesus says, well, keep listening because I'm going to tell you for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount what this different, new, unique kind of Christian righteousness looks like. How does God really want us to live? Jesus is going to show us in the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically this morning, Jesus is going to talk about what that superior kind of righteousness looks like at a ground level in our lives when it's applied to sex, marriage, love, and lust. So if you weren't awake already, you probably are now. <laughs> um, because, and because this is a sensitive topic, like I said before, I'd really ask you to lean in and hear what Jesus has to say. Because sexuality is a part of all of human life, because God created us as sexual beings, not after Genesis 3, not after the fall, but we were sexual beings before the fall. God created us male and female. Uh, Jesus isn't afraid to talk about sex, and so I don't think the church should be either. In fact, throughout history, uh, Jesus' words about his people, being noticeably different from the world, being salt and light. That's been especially true in this area that we're going to talk about, the area of sexuality. Christians have always stood out from the world and from other world religions at this point. And I think it's also at this point, talking about this topic, that the church seems most ridiculous to the outside world, probably. That what we're saying makes absolutely no sense to the people who don't believe the Bible or or, or don't know Jesus. But I think that if what Christ says is true, and I really believe it is, what we have in the New Testament is not only a completely unique and new way of looking at human sexuality that the, that the, the world had not seen uh, before, uh, Jesus is also revolutionizing the way we're, we're supposed to think about our bodies, uh, about, about the true source of human wickedness, about the true value of human persons and about the authority of God over all of our lives, even the secret places. And also, we should note that what the Bible teaches about sex is totally different from the two dominant messages of the world. This is just just to kind of give you a framework. Uh, Jesus is combating two, what uh, some authors call false narratives. You've heard Paul use that word before. Um, And both of these false narratives, they don't really do justice to the depth and the beauty and the power of what the Bible teaches about who we are. Uh, The first narrative is this. It says, if it feels good, do it. All sexual desire is good. So if you feel it in your heart, go for it. Uh, No limits. Uh, All sexual desire must be good. And then the second narrative uh, that Jesus is uh, dealing with is this false religious narrative, which says, all sexual desire is evil, all of it's twisted, all of it's uh, corrupt. And so we have to be clear here that Jesus is not opposed to sex. I'll just say that again. Jesus isn't opposed to sex. God isn't opposed to sex, but he's opposed to immoral, unloving, selfish sex. Sexual immorality, that's what Jesus is preaching against. And what he's preaching for, what he's pressing upon us this morning, can be summed up in one word. And it's an old world. which kind of an un, un- An unfashionable word. Um, It's called chastity. Now chastity just means sexual purity. It's not sexual abstinence, just saying no to sexual acts, but chastity means that sex should be enjoyed. That's right. Enjoyed within marriage, which the Bible assumes and teaches that should be between a a man and a woman uh, within marriage uh, with complete faithfulness to your partner. That's what chastity is or nothing else. So chastity, sexual purity, sexual holiness, within marriage, which is between a man and a woman, according to the Bible, or nothing else. And That's what it is. Um, and so you're not surprised that C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, this is what he said about chastity. He said, it's the most unpopular of all the Christian virtues. And he wrote that like 75 years ago. So if it was unpopular 75 years ago, I mean, not that much has really changed. Um, and so we're going to see this morning why chastity or sexual holiness is actually a good and beautiful way of living and why it's worth fighting for. Uh, fighting for holiness means fighting against something, fighting against sin. In this case, it's the sin of lust. Uh, so even before we set out, let's, let's just remind ourselves the call, the thing that we're called to this morning by Jesus is holiness, chastity, sexual purity. Okay? The enemy that we're supposed to fight against is sin. Lust. And the battlefield, it's not in the culture, it's, it, it, it's, it's not on the news, it's not in the courts. The battlefield where we're supposed to fight this primarily is in our own hearts. So Jesus is inviting us to see this morning that we're called by our King to honor him with our whole self. We're called the sexual purity. And because Jesus is calling his kingdom people, the citizens of God's kingdom, to sexual purity, we must fight. For holiness we must fight against lust in all of its forms And jesus's call to purity is really three different calls First it's a call to see the scope of our sin Next it's a call to see the seriousness of our sin and last and maybe most important It's a call to see the strength that he provides to us So let's look at this first call uh, Starting in verse 27 the call to see the scope of our sin And we see Jesus is is showing us that that our sin, your sin, my sin, is both more widespread and more deeply rooted in your life than you would have ever thought before. So Jesus begins this section of a sermon with a familiar phrase, and he's going to use it over and over again. He says, you have heard it said. So Jesus is, it seems like, uh, quoting the Bible, right? Because he goes on to quote Moses uh, from Deuteronomy 5 and the Ten Commandments. He's quoting the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery. So he's quoting that, but what's really strange here is that usually when Jesus is quoting the Bible, he says, it is written, or Moses wrote, right? And so Jesus normally when he's quoting the Bible, he says, it is written, but here he's saying, you have heard it said. And in some translations, it says, you have heard it said of old. So what Jesus is actually critiquing here isn't the Bible. It's not Moses. Remember, he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy the law. So he's not setting himself against Moses. He's setting himself against a false tradition. He's saying, remember what the teachers have told you? Remember this oral tradition that's come down of uh, interpreting the law in a certain way? Well, I'm going to tell you what the law actually really means. I'm going to give you the authoritative interpretation. So Jesus isn't... um, fighting the Old Testament. He's not pitting himself against the Bible, he's pitting himself against bad theology. Which is really helpful to think that Jesus cares enough to clarify what scripture means for us about this important topic. Okay? And so just just let that get out of your mind the idea that like New Testament good, Jesus all love, Old Testament bad, God all judgment, right? That that's not the case. Some people look at that and say, "Oh, Jesus Is saying the Old Testament's wrong. No, no, no. The the interpretation of the Old Testament that was passed down was skewed. It was faulty. It was insufficient. So Jesus is fulfilling the law. He's filling it up with all of its real meaning. Because after all, he gave the law. I think he knows what it's supposed to mean. So in verse 27, uh, Jesus says, You have heard it said. You have heard it taught. The Pharisees have taught you. You shall not commit adultery. And what they're doing, Jesus is saying, is is they've narrowed the commandment down. And they've missed the point of it. For them, for the Pharisees, the command was about acts of marital unfaithfulness. It's something that happens with a married person. And another person that they're not married to. But Jesus says the command doesn't just outlaw the act. It outlaws a look. And not just between a married man and another person's wife. But a look at any woman. At any other person. Now, this moment uh, would be the spit-take moment if you were sitting in the crowd. If, you know what a spit-take is? There's people in a, a, a movie. So let's just think of the scene. They're at like a dinner table, and someone's drinking a glass of wine or some hot coffee or some tea. And someone's got some news, and they say, well, guess what? Then she said, and the person goes, I can't believe that. That's unbelievable. So Jesus, at this moment, when he says, it's not just the act. It's the look too. People are going, what? What did you just say? That's unbelievable. No, that, that can't be right. Did he just say what I think he said? That it's not just, it's not just adultery. It's a lustful look. Uh, they had narrowed down the command so that it only applied to a small set of behaviors, and Jesus is expanding and filling the command with its full meaning. Now we should know that if if the Pharisees paid attention to uh, the whole bible they would have really noticed this because uh, job who's the righteous man in the old testament job says to god in job 31 1 hey i've made a covenant with my eyes god not to look lustfully at a woman so job knew that it wasn't just he didn't just say god i haven't committed adultery he said god i've made a covenant with my eyes because i know that the look is just as bad as the act and so not only was the pharisees teaching too narrow Okay, to to only apply to a small set of behaviors. It was also too superficial. Remember, their brand of holiness dealt with outward actions. But Jesus knows that sin is about the inner motivations of our hearts. In the Bible, the heart is the source, it's the fountainhead of our lives. It's the center of worship, of our will, of our identity. So Jesus says we can tell the problem in our hearts by the fruit it bears in our actions. And when an action... The outward action is motivated by an inward attitude of lust. You can kind of trace the act back into the state of the heart. And you can see that the root attitude of the heart is the same as the person who commits adultery. And Jesus names this word that I think is really important for us. uh, Because it's really important to get definitions right. He says, the problem... Is not sex the problem? Is not sexual desire the problem? Is lust. Um, So what is lust? In Scripture, lust is a strong desire. The word's epithumia, which means like, you know, if something's epic, guys, young people, if something's epic, what is it? It's amazing. It's bigger than normal, right? It's it's just unbelievable. It breaks all the boundaries. So epithumia is a desire that breaks all boundaries. It's a desire that's run wild. And in the Bible, epithymia can be either a good thing, like in the upper room, Jesus is having communion, uh, the Last Supper with people. And he says, hey, I've strongly desired to have this Passover with you. He's saying, I've to have this strong to have this Passover with you. But in the Bible, epithymia can also be a bad thing. It's a desire that breaks all bounds that God has put on And specifically, when it's talking about uh, sexual lust, sexual epithumia, the Bible uh, says that lust is a sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. So just just think about that. When we say the word lust, it's it's something that, that dishonors its object. Dishonors the thing it's pointed to or the person it's pointed to and then it also disregards god It dishonors its object meaning it doesn't tra- treat people like people Like people in need of love people who are in need of mercy and patience and forgiveness It doesn't treat people like people lust treats people like objects like a collection of body parts Lust doesn't care what someone's name is It's not about knowing someone. It's about using someone And lust also doesn't just dishonor people. It disregards God, meaning it says, I don't care what God says about this desire. I don't know. I don't care what God tells me I should do with it. I'm going to act for a moment like he isn't God, and I'm not made to love and serve him and be accountable to him. So it dishonors its object, and it disregards God. And the reason that a look of lust is the same as the act of adultery We've seen is that it both springs from a heart that wants to take something and it doesn't care what promises it has to break. The lustful heart wants what the lustful heart wants and whether you're breaking with covenant God or you're breaking your covenant with God or another person for an action or for a thought, it really doesn't matter. The damage has been done. But So let's take it even further if we may um, because if we're not careful... We can take what I've said and we'll do exactly what the Pharisees did. We'll take this command and we'll apply it to someone else. We'll say, oh, I don't really struggle with that. That, that, That's not a problem for me. Because I think if we're honest, it's uncomfortable to hear someone tell you that you're basically an adulterer. That at at, at your heart, uh, you're committing adultery every day. But if we think about what Jesus is saying here. If adultery and looks can flow from the same kind of heart, what else could flow out of a heart like that? Now, now maybe what I've described sounds familiar to some of you in the room. Maybe you're familiar with the kind of lust that I've just talked about. But for other of you, maybe you don't objectify people's bodies. Uh, But think about this. Lust can also happen when you objectify a persona or, or make a fantasy of another person. So especially speaking to the women in the room, okay, do you ever dream about finding security and fulfillment with someone, but God isn't in your thoughts, God isn't in the picture? Women, do you ever think about how someone else has the perfect husband or an ideal boyfriend? That can be lust too, just a different expression of it. Now, maybe you don't struggle with pornography, but do you ever feel like God owes you something, That he's holding out on you. Now, these are the signs of an over desire in your heart that's disregarding God. Now, so just ask yourself what is it you feel like you need today? What is it you feel like you need when you get up in the morning to be blessed, to be fulfilled? And and ask yourself is that need connected to something in your heart that's running wild, that wants to break the boundaries? And so Jesus wants to make sure that none of us walk out of here today thinking that this is just someone else's problem. Parents, I'm talking to you. This isn't just your kid's problem. This isn't just, you know, this younger generation's problem. Uh, You know, on, on an airplane, if there's a crash, what do they say? The masks come down. Whose mask do you take first? Your own. You can't help someone else unless you get help yourself first. And so that's what I want to encourage you to do. Consider this for yourself, apply it to yourself, and then, praise God, by his grace, you'll be able to be a help to someone else. So we can see that we have a problem, right? The root of adultery is in our heart, so what do we do about it? We've seen that the scope of sin is beyond uh, what we can imagine, and so what do we do? Well, Jesus, the great physician, he's given us this diagnosis, and what he prescribes is pretty drastic. He asks us to take drastic measures to fight our sin. He's saying that we need to take our problem seriously because he doesn't just want us to understand the scope of our sin. He wants us to understand the seriousness, the gravity of our sin. So Jesus' next call, if you're keeping track, is a call to see that sexual sin is seriousness So Jesus is going beyond the Pharisees who made these distinctions between big sins and small sins to say that any sin, even the smallest sin, a look, a thought in our hearts needs to be looked at with the utmost seriousness. And we can see him in these next two verses in 29 and 30, holding up a picture of what it looks like to take sin seriously. To fight against lust, we need to understand both the serious consequences of sin and the serious cost of entering into the fight with sin. So first, uh, look, look at verse 29. Okay, people are asking Jesus. They're saying, what should we do, Jesus? And he says in verse 29, hey, if even your right eye causes you to sin, or your right hand are causing you to sin, okay, get rid of it. Make a break with sin and whatever's causing you to sin. Okay, why, Jesus? Why should we do that? Well, the text is clear. Jesus says because of the eternal consequences, the serious consequences of sin. He says because hell is real. And sin will take you there. And you don't want to go there. And Jesus is saying even the sin that seems private and in control right now, it can have eternal consequences. So in case we think this is just an isolated saying, oh, maybe Jesus made a mistake, um... Jesus actually repeats this twice. He says, well, not just your eye, but your hand too. And then, if you want to get really serious about it, you can look in Matthew 18, and Jesus says the same phrase again. This is, uh, you can look at it later, Matthew 18, verses 7 and 9. Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin, and woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off throw it away It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire And if your right eye causes you to sin Tear it out and throw it away It's better you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire So in both passages jesus is saying that there's no such thing as small stakes sin Whatever direction sin comes your way However, you're tempted to sin He's saying wake up And so many of us, I think, are concerned about this life, and I mean, you ought to be. There's a lot to be concerned with in this world, but this life and all the pleasures and pain that we experience here are a speck of dust, a blink of an eye. We're called to full life here in God's world, but those who are citizens of a better country, we're looking For that country we're hoping for that country and god's trying to give us an eternal perspective beyond what is happening right now And so with that eternal perspective in mind You realize that any sacrifice you make in this life is worth it to make sure that you enter into the next life And so make no mistake it takes sacrifice to battle against sin it's costly Jesus reminds us both of the eternal value of salvation Also, so that we can face the cost of obedience right now So jesus is saying hey count the cost be ready to lose what might even be good and pleasurable For the sake of following after me. So he's saying even your right eye even your right hand These are precious parts of your body. Hands are good. Eyes are good. Jesus isn't against hands or eyes or feet But he's saying even if those things are a source of temptation to sin, you got to cut them off In Luke 14, he says, hey, if even your father and mother, if your family is keeping you from being my disciple, you have to choose me. You have to, it almost as if you'd hate your family, turn from them and turn to me. So Jesus is saying, if even a good thing comes between you and Jesus, you have to hate it. Because it's not good for you if it comes between you and him. That's the principle. So now we have to ask before, you know, we come back to church next week and everyone has an eye patch on. Um... Is Jesus suggesting that we literally pluck out our eyes or physically cut off our hand? Well, no, I don't think so. Although in church history, some people have thought so, just to be safe. Um, And the reason we know that he's not saying that um, is because sin doesn't come from an eye or a hand. It comes from the heart. It comes from the evil inside of us. So what Jesus is inviting us to do here isn't mutilation, uh, but mortification, (laughs) Mortification is another one of those old words, and it means putting something to death, Uh, killing sin. Like Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, it says, put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness. All of those are idolatry. They come from disordered worship in your heart. So put them to death. And putting sin to death means making a total break from sinful practices and from sinful situations. So for example, if you're tempted to sin, By your eye, by things you see, okay? So act as though you're blind and you can't see those things anymore. If you're tempted to sin because of things you do, uh, your hand, or places you go, your feet, Jesus is saying, well, act as though you're immobilized. So you can't do those things anymore. Uh, Just regard them as uh, dead to you. And so the application is this. Knowing that the stakes are high, knowing that fighting sin is costly, Jesus is saying pursuing purity is probably going to be painful for us. It might even be physically painful for us to fight sin. It is for sure going to be emotionally painful to fight sin. And for some of us, the pain that we need to embrace is just the pain of embarrassment, of just letting someone else in to our struggle with us and confessing. Maybe that's the cross that you've got to take up. Maybe that's the pain that you're supposed to bear. It's just admitting that you need someone else's help. Um, So I wonder, is there something that you need to make a break with today? Is there a place that you go that tempts you to sin? Is there an activity that tempts you to sin that you need to end? Is there a relationship that you have that's coming between you and Jesus that you need to end? So to get more specific, are you sinning because of what you can access on your computer? Well, get an internet filter. We can recommend some great ones. The staff all use Covenant Eyes, this internet filter on our computers. And uh, while it's not perfect, uh, we really believe that it says to the congregation and to our spouses, and, and just it reminds us that we can't look at whatever we want, that we're embracing limits for the sake of holiness, um, so if if having the latest smartphone is a temptation to you, just having the internet in your pocket um, or an app on your phone, it's causing you to sin. I, I just say get rid of it. Um, if you have a Samsung Galaxy Note Seven, just let it explode on its own. <laughs> so just just take that and even just buy one of those. And you know, well it eventually it'll it'll just blow up. So and then it won't be a problem to you. And and I I've known men who have done this. And I, and I think it's a be- it just. It's such a a small thing, but I think it's really beautiful. Just get a flip phone. Go to an antique store and get an old flip phone (laughs) where you can't get the Internet on it. And I think we can have bad phones for the sake of the kingdom of God, and that's okay. Now, to some of you, this is just going to sound like the frog and toad solution. This is just going to be like uh, try harder, more willpower, buckle down, stop sinning. But Jesus isn't saying that radical effort is all that we need. But he's not saying that it's less than all we need. In other words, fighting for purity is really going to require effort on your part, but that's not going to get you all the way there. Because we've seen by now that the problem is too big. Jesus has brought the full weight of the law down on us. And now hearing the law, kind of sitting under that should make us mourn. It should make us feel spiritually poor. It should make us hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is that ringing a bell? That's exactly how people in the kingdom should feel. Spiritually poor, in need, hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And praise God, the message of the gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners and give them a righteousness outside of themselves. He comes to the spiritually poor. He comes to those who lack self-control. He comes to the needy, and he promises to give to them what he requires of them. Because you see, in order to fight sexual sin and to walk closely with Jesus, we need a strength greater than ourselves, and praise God. Jesus isn't only calling us to see our sin. He wants us to see the strength that he provides. So in order to fight lust, in order to fight for purity, we're going to need the strength that Christ provides. Well, how do we get it? First, we need to remember there's strength in numbers. Okay, just think for a moment about the crowd around Jesus. The people are hearing this difficult saying. I mean, husbands and wives are sitting next to each other hearing this sermon. And the wives are nudging their husband. They're going, are you listening to this? So they're, they're sitting hearing this sermon. Think about, for a minute, for, about Peter. No self-control. <laughs> Super impulsive, right? Kind of violent, kind of rude. Peter one of Jesus' disciples. And this guy, he heard this sermon. I bet self-control was a, po- a problem for Peter. He hears this sermon and he thinks, probably like some of us think, that's no way. I can't do that. That's unrealistic. But what Peter does is he keeps walking with Jesus and not just by himself with a group of friends. And they're all walking with Jesus together. And guess what? That little group of people who lacked self-control, who were immature, they changed the entire world. Because God's got a long game plan. And he's providing something for you. He's providing strength that you need to fight your sin. And it's outside yourself. And it might just be someone else in this room. The incredible thing that I think I forget when I read the Bible by myself is that Jesus is speaking to a group of people. He's not just speaking to me. You know, sometimes if you're just having your quiet time, you're reading by yourself, and Jesus says, but I say to you. You're thinking, okay, Jesus, you're speaking directly to me. I say to to you, Sam. But Jesus, in the Greek, he's saying, I say to y'all. I say to all of you. I say to you all. I say to the, the crowd of people that are listening, everyone listen to me. This is what you're going to be committed to. This command is for you to keep together. And and as I'm constantly reminded, I think especially when I pray about our community groups and our community group leaders, sanctification in the Bible is a group project. It's not a solo project. So can I ask you, you, are you drawing strength from God's community? Have you taken that painful step of going public with your struggle? Now, if you just go home and you think through this sermon on your own, I think you've missed the point. If you have a community group, here's what I'd like you to do. Gather one or two people that you can trust. You don't have to do this in front of the whole group. Gather one or two people you can trust and and talk with them about your sin. Okay? If you don't have a group, you can do what we said before. Grab an elder. Grab a staff person. Just grab someone in the congregation and say, hey, can we meet? I want to talk about this. Grab the book and go through it with us. Um, Finally, uh, Jesus gives us another source of strength not just the community around us but uh this last source that we can't forget and the greatest source of strength for us in our fight against sin is jesus himself think about it in the moment of temptation in the moment of sexual temptation especially god becomes unreal to us we just forget about him this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says that when we're caught by lust, what the devil does is he doesn't make us hate God. He just makes us forgetful of God. It's like there's a fog around who God is, around, who is, around what his word says. And so uh, Paul says it this way in First Thessalonians 4. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. For God hasn't called us for impurity, but in holiness. And it says, whoever disregards this, you're not just disregarding the teaching of man. You're disregarding God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So sexual temptation makes you forget or disregard God. And what I would encourage you to do is in your moment of lust, regard Jesus. Don't disregard God. Regard him. Think of him. Think of his love for you. Think of how unconditionally he loves you, how he would never break covenant with you because there's nothing that he desires more than to glorify God by uniting himself to you and rescuing you. Think of that, regard that. And for you who are afraid to lose a hand or an eye for the sake of your soul, Jesus looks at you and he says, For him, for her, I'm not just going to give my hand or my eye. I'm going to give my whole body for them. I'm going to go all the way down. I'm going to suffer hell in their place because I don't care what it costs. My greatest treasure is to have them, to know them to have my bride, that picture in Revelation 21 of the bride of Christ, purified and holy, dressed in white, and Christ the groom is coming and so excited to be with his bride. That's the picture that Jesus has when he thinks of you. And that is why you must fight for purity because according to Christ, only the pure in heart will see God. And so we have to fight, not just to avoid punishment. We have to fight to grab hold of a superior pleasure, a greater and deeper pleasure that lust is only a shadow of. Because there's more joy in Christ than you could ever possibly use up in your lifetime. Do you know that? And lust dulls your ability to taste him. It dulls your ability to see him and enjoy him. In the moment of temptation, you can either look to Jesus Or you can look somewhere else in lust. You can't do both at the same time. You have to look away from Jesus to lust. And so what I would encourage you to do is just keep your eyes firmly fixed on him. And whatever you need, seek it from him first. Go to God in prayer and hear him say these words. Hear him say, you shall not commit adultery. Now, if if in the Sermon on the Mount, it was Peter saying, you shall not commit adultery, we might think, that's nice, Peter. You don't know anything about me. If it was just me saying, church, you shall not commit adultery. You shall be pure. You might say, Sam, that's really nice, but uh, that's just your opinion. What do you know about me? What do you know about my struggles? But when God says it, when Jesus's voice says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall be pure. That's the same voice that called the stars into existence. That said, there shall be light, and there was light. So God is looking at dead people. He's looking at powerless people, and He's speaking not just the law, He's speaking a command. He's speaking, he, He's prophesying. He's not just telling you about the present, He's telling you about the future. And He's saying definitively, My church will not commit adultery. You will no longer commit adultery. Because I have the power to do what I say. It's not just about the present. It's a prediction of you and mine's future. You will be pure. You will be set free. Jesus says it. So it's true. And as we conclude, I just want you to hear this. If you're a citizen in God's kingdom, you're called to fight against lust. It's what we're called to do. It's what we're commanded to do by our king. We have to be killing sin or it's going to be killing us. So if you're stuck in some kind of sin and you're losing the battle, I, I just want to suggest um, something to you that has been really helpful to me. And, and this will, will help you kind of grab hold of the strength uh, that God provides. If, and if someone is coming to you ap- afterwards and they're asking for counsel, they're saying, what should I do? Just write this down. Hopefully this will be helpful. Uh, do these three things. Confess. Confess affirm, and request. It spells car, which is the cheesiest uh, thing ever, but it really works. Confess, affirm, and request. Get before God, confess. Ask God for the grace to see and admit your sin. Ask him to not only reveal your actions, ask him to reveal your motives for your actions. Affirm, remember what's most true. Remember God's forgiveness through Christ. Jesus has paid your penalty, amen? God says you're forgiven. And if God says you're forgiven, you really are. Really. You really are forgiven. Confess, affirm, then request. Ask for God's grace to help you change. Okay? For all of us, ask ourselves. Say, where am I in need of God's transforming love? Where am I in need of his grace? Where do I forget God to focus on pleasure? And then I want you to ask yourself, who are you walking with? Because we're all called to fight together. And, and I just want to remind you, this is, uh, I'll read this at the, the benediction, but this is 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, Paul's talking to a church that's like us, uh, a church that has struggled with all kinds of different sin, and Paul's calling them to be holy. Because God's calling him to be holy, and this is what he says. Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. You don't just sanctify yourself. God sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Just tattoo this on your arm. Write it backwards on your, your forehead so you can remember this when you look in the mirror. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely Do it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are faithful and that you love us who are so often unfaithful. So, Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here. If they're poor, if they're weak, if they feel hungry for righteousness, Father, would you make them glad? Would you make them blessed? thank you for calling us to you. Thank you for calling us to you in love that you yourself have promised to satisfy the most intimate longings of our heart. And Father, thank you for promising to give us what we need to turn from our sin and be empowered to walk with you in love.